This is Victoria of TheUnleashedHeart.com, and you're listening to Grieving Voices, a podcast for hurting hearts who desire to be heard, or anyone who wants to learn how to better support loved ones experiencing loss. As a 30-plus year griever and advanced grief recovery method specialist, I know how badly the conversation around grief needs to change. Through this podcast, I aim to educate grievers and non-grievers alike, spread hope, and inspire compassion toward those hurting. Lastly, by providing my heart with ears and this platform, grievers have the opportunity to share their wisdom and stories of loss and resiliency. How about we talk about grief like we talk about the weather? Let's get started. Thank you for tuning in to Grieving Voices. Today, my guest is Scott Deluzio. He is an Army veteran, having served six years with the Army National Guard, including a deployment to Afghanistan in 2010. Scott's brother, Stephen, was also deployed to Afghanistan, also in 2010. Unfortunately, Stephen was killed in action on August 22, 2010. After returning home, Scott struggled with coping with the stresses of combat the loss of his younger brother, and adjusting back to civilian life. Thank you so much for being here, Scott. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really glad to be able to come on and share my story with you and your audience. And it is a story that hasn't been expressed on the podcast. I know I was on your podcast, Drive On, a little while a while back, and I'm not sure when that episode will go live for sure. I don't remember anymore, but and at the time of this recording, it doesn't matter. But um, we have that in common where we both deployed. I was deployed in Iraq, but I have not had this type of loss represented on the podcast. So thank you for being open to sharing your story. We have a lot of acronyms, right? In the military, it's all acronyms. And one right. acronym that we also have in grief recovery is our STURBS. And it means short-term energy relieving behaviors. And you mentioned a STURB in your information that you shared with me. And yours, it sounds like, was alcohol. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's correct. When I got back from Afghanistan, I was home uh, with with my family, and I couldn't sleep to for for anything like I, it sleep was just eluding me um it was night after night where i would just be laying in bed staring at the ceiling um not able to fall asleep and the the pain of losing my brother was significant and i found myself drinking more and more and more um you know it started off just normal like casual drinking having a you know glass of wine with dinner or something like that but then it became more and more after, you know, after dinner, going, going in later into the night. And I found that I was helping myself to fall asleep by basically drinking until I passed out. So it wasn't really sleep. It was really just, I was making myself pass out, um, which obviously has the issue of, you know, the next morning I was, you know, hung over. I wasn't the, uh, the friendliest or nicest person to, to be around. And, um, you know, I, I would, I would kind of get through the day just by drinking more and more coffee throughout the day, just to keep myself going, you know, uh, energy drinks, things like that. But then that, that started affecting my, my sleep too, as I was drinking it later and later in the day, it just became this vicious cycle. And, you know, I, I would use uh, like sleeping pills, trying to help myself get to sleep and, you know, combining that with the alcohol that doesn't, isn't exactly the healthiest option either. And, 
you know, it, it was just, it was just one of those things where I was looking for that, that relief, that basically numbing the pain, getting, getting rid of that, not, not addressing it, not facing it head on and, and dealing with it in a healthy way. And, uh, and that was, that was causing a lot of problems, it caused problems with uh, my physical health, my mental health, my uh, relationships, my, my job, I, I, I was going into work basically hung over, you know, on, on a regular basis. And it wasn't exactly what you want to do when, when you're, you're working in a professional kind of corporate uh, job. Uh, it's not what you really want to do. You're, you're kind of looked at a little bit differently when you're, you're walking in still, still kind of shaking off the cobwebs and everything. So, you know, it, it was, it was just really hard for me to be able to deal with the, the stuff that I was going through. And, and it was, it was hard. It was hard for me uh, to, to get through all of that. How old were your kids at the time? So I had a, uh, before I deployed, uh, my, my first son was born. Uh, so he was nine or 10 months old at the time. So young enough that he doesn't remember this part of, of life. Um, I, I now have two other kids who fortunately were not around uh, during that time period either. And so, you know, they don't, they don't remember that obviously either. So, you know, but I, I also wasn't the best dad either. You know, I, I would have, and, and this was like when he, when I got home, he was about nine or 10 months, but this obviously went on for, for a little while afterwards too. So, um, you know, he was a toddler, he's getting into trouble, like all little kids do. Right. And, um, I, I would just have a short temper, uh, with just about everything. And when he would do things that normal kids do, they, they spill their food off the, their high chair or they, uh, you know, make a mess in the living room or whatever it is, you know, that he was doing uh, it. I, I just would, would flip out and I'd start screaming and yelling. And, and it was, that was just not who I was. That that's not the type of person who uh, I was before I deployed. I, I was a pretty easygoing type of person. I, I didn't get, I wasn't too high strung. I didn't get upset over little things like that. Um, you know, sure there's, there's inconveniences, but you know, you just deal with them as, as you go along in life. Right. And, um, but I, I was finding it harder and harder to deal with even these small little inconveniences. And so I, I found myself just getting angry and frustrated, upset at, at all these little tiny things. And it was just about everything that, that I was getting mad at and anything that, that was even slightly inconvenient or, or off or whatever. I, I just would, I'd be flipping out about it. And, and I realized that's not the kind of dad I wanted to be. It's not the type of person I wanted to be, uh, for, for my son, for my wife, for, uh, the people who are around me that I, I cared about, who cared about me. I didn't want to be that kind of person. Cause then, then you just end up pushing those people away. And so, so yeah, um, that was kind of a long answer to that question, you know, how old they were, but, um, but yeah, that was, that was kind of a, that situation that I was going through. When did that change for you? And did you notice that how you were reacting to situations, then your children sort of, that's how they responded to to yeah. situations. Like, did you have, were there behavior things with the kids then being reflected back to you? Yeah. That, and that's exactly what it was. Um, I, I started noticing my, my oldest son. Um, I would, I used to do this thing when I would get frustrated or angry where I would grit my teeth and, uh, I started noticing him doing that anytime he would be getting upset at, at small little things, uh, you know, things that 
weren't going his way. You know, it's, it's time for a nap and he didn't want to go take a nap and he grit his teeth and he'd get angry. And it was like looking in a mirror. Um, it was a, it was an ugly mirror. I didn't want to look in that mirror. You know, I, I wanted to, I wanted to have a happy, healthy child, not, not one who was getting angry at, at these little things the way I was doing. And, and really for me, the, the, the moment where the, the light bulb went off and I, I realized something is definitely wrong is this, this time when uh, my, my dog that we had at the time, uh, she's since passed away, but back then she, she had gotten sick. Um, I don't know if she ate something that didn't agree with her or whatever. And she was walking in our, our bedroom and she was right at the edge of our, our bedroom and in the master bathroom that we had, which had a uh, nice tile floor. Um, and the, the bedroom, which had a, a nice brand new white carpet. And she started to throw up and she's standing right at the edge between the bathroom and, and in the doorway and to the, uh, to the bathroom. And she throws up right on the, the white carpet and I flipped out. I started screaming and yelling and, and everything as if the dog can understand me anyways. Right. Like she, she didn't know what I was saying. Um, she knew I was mad, uh, probably just by the tone of my voice and you know how loud I was and everything like that. But I mean, she's sick. She, she's not feeling well. What good was all of that yelling and screaming going to do anyways? You know, I was, I was just mad that she didn't take two seconds to go walk into the bathroom where it had been so much easier to clean up on a tile floor versus uh, the, the white carpet right now. I, now I probably have to go rent a steam cleaner and, you know, get the, get that out and everything. Um, but again, in the grand scheme of things, it's a pretty minor inconvenience uh, to, to things. And like, that's not the kind of person that I am. I, I love dogs. I I'm not the type of person who's going to be, you know, getting upset at, at a dog for doing something that, you know, is natural. She, she's feeling sick. So she, that's just what dogs, people, that's what anyone is going to do. Uh, you know, quite frankly, I, I feel like I like, I like more dogs than, I, than, than certain people <laughs> at, at times too. Right. So I, I was like, that, who is this person? Who am I? What have I become? And my wife and I, at, at, at that time, uh, we, we kind of sat down and she said, you know, I, I thought you might be able to handle some of this stuff on your own. Um, you know, the, the stuff that you're going through, but it seems like you're having some tough time with it and it might be time to reach out and get some help. And so, so I did. Um, and I, I, I kind of realized that at, at that moment too, I was like, this isn't, this isn't me. This isn't who I want to be. And I, I can't figure out what I'm doing wrong and what, what I need to do to change. And so I reached out to the vet center um, which is kind of affiliated through the the VA. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how, but they, I know they are. Um, and they they offer counseling services, and um, they they helped me to get my my anger under control, so that I wasn't having these outbursts all the time. It wasn't perfect. It, it's it's a slow process. It's not like you you go in, you sit down on a on a couch for one session, and then boom, magically everything's rainbows and unicorns, right? It it's a process, and it, and it takes time. But you have to. I, I, what I realize is that you have to let the process work. You you can't just go in expecting that that Amazon overnight delivery where you get the the results instantaneously. It's something that you have to work at, and you have to be conscious about what you're doing and and how your things are affecting you in your life and and that's what kind of helped me to get away from being 
so frustrated and angry all the time. There is a quote, and I'm going to ad lib because I don't know exactly how it goes, but something to the effect of, I sat with my anger long enough until it told me its name, and its name was grief. And I really relate to your story in that, in the anger, because I would call myself a rage, I would have called myself a ragey mom. You would call yourself a ragey dad at that point, right? Right. Just so much anger which really is grief and sadness and all these feelings unexpressed and undealt, you know, not dealt with. But I didn't connect the dots to a situation I experienced until your story. When my son was three years old and I had three children in four years. So I had a three-year-old, I had an 18-month-old, and I had a, what was she, six-month-old? <laughs> Something hey, wow. great. I mean, boom, boom, boom. Like I was like, a walking zombie, angry, ragey mom, right? But my son just would not listen. He wanted to take his bike out and I couldn't watch him get my kids in. You know, I pulled into the garage and I need to get the car seat and the 18 month old or, you know, however old she was, I think 18 months at the time. Um, They're 18 months apart, actually. The older two are 18 months apart and then the girls are two years. But anyway, a baby in a car seat, then the younger one or the middle one had to get them in the house. And he was like, just going on and on about needing his bike and wanting to ride his bike. And I said, I can't be outside with you right now. And I can't let him just ride around outside all by himself. So I I did what I thought I could do in that moment. And I locked his bike in the van, take the girls into the house. Next thing I know, my middle one is coming in, mommy, mommy, Xavier is t- is hitting the van with a bat. What? And I step out in the garage and no crap, he is s- slugging my van with the bat. So angry that I locked his bike in there that he couldn't have his bike. Broke our window. It ended up costing over $2,000 to get that replaced. But I didn't connect it until your your story of how our anger is just reflected back to us from our mm-hmm. kids. If there are behavioral issues with your children, how about you look at your own behavior? Parents yeah. listening? <laughs> right. And what grief do you have that is unexpressed? So thank you for sharing all of that because I really feel like that is a very good message for this podcast today. Yeah, and there, there's, there's another uh, example of this too where – uh, and, and not from my own personal life, but just uh, from uh, some TV shows that I, I've seen where um, there's a, a show that it used to be on. I don't know if it's still on or not, but uh, it, it, it was with this dog trainer. Uh, his name Caesar Milan, the uh, the dog whisperer, right? And I remember he would go into these households where the dog is out of control and they're acting all crazy and out of control. And he wa- observes how the the owners are are acting and interacting with the dogs, and they're just as out of control. And, and, and so he he looks at them and, and he says, "I think I need to train you before I start working on on your dogs because you're the problem. You, you are the one who is is basically making this dog so crazy." And once when he starts addressing those behavior issues, then the dog starts starts behaving a little bit differently and maybe yeah there's still some work that needs to be done with the dog itself but um but it's it's really 
reflecting from from the the owners, right? And so, um, you know, it's a, the same idea, I think, where where our our behaviors and our reactions uh, get reflected uh, to those who are around us. Back to us, right? It's like a boomerang. Yeah. The energy you bring to a room, you're going to get it back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, well, let's rewind the clock before you were ragey dad to where it all started because you deployed with your brother. Uh, so we were, he was in the Vermont Army National Guard. I was in the Connecticut Army National Guard. Okay. And, um, both of our units, there was some reorganization that that took place before we deployed, and both of our units ended up in the same brigade. And so th- this deployment was a brigade-wide deployment. So uh, we were both deployed uh, just about the same time, um, you know, give or take a, a couple weeks, just with you know uh, training and, and other cycles that we had to go through before getting there. Uh, I actually got to Afghanistan first. Uh, he got there maybe a, a week or two later, but we, we were stationed far enough apart that we never saw each other once when we were there. And as a matter of fact, the only communication really that we had between the two of us uh, was kind of playing that telephone game. When I would call home to our, our parents, um, they would, they would tell me what was going on with him and, and vice versa with, with him. So when he would call home, he'd find out what was going on with me and everything. So um so we really didn't talk at all. We may have sent an email here and there, but but really not much. And quite frankly, we were kind of focused on our our job, so we didn't really have all that much time to take off to to go give each other a phone call or you know find out what's going on with each other. So so yeah, so we were we were deployed at the same time, but not together. Uh, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. I ask that because. I think it's important that people understand listening to this that that's a scenario that played out often, mm-hmm. still does likely, where you have siblings or people who are married, like my husband and I deployed together, not in the same place, but we knew what each other was doing, right? You yeah. knew what he was doing. He knew what yeah. you were doing. And yeah, you don't have that same level of communication as you did calling home. Right. And so it makes it harder, I think, because... Yeah you know what you're doing and you can't communicate as openly and freely. And so, I mean, was that always in the back of your mind, like this worry knowing what he was doing too? You know what? Um, it wasn't really. And I think it was like a defensive mechanism that I, I put up this, this shield telling myself, uh, basically lying to myself saying that he, nothing was going to happen to him. Nothing bad was going to happen to him. He had previously deployed to Iraq. He was in Ramadi in 2006, which was a really rough time to be in in that area. And I I said, if he made it through that, he's going to be able to make it through this deployment. No problem. Uh, You know, I I wasn't even worried about him getting injured um, or killed. That wasn't even a thought on, on my my mind. I didn't even entertain that thought. We were both going to come home as far as I was concerned. We we're both going to go back to our, our lives. I was going to come back to my wife and my son. And he was he was uh, engaged to be married uh, about a year uh, after we were scheduled to come back home. Uh, so he was going to come home. He was going to get married. He was going to start his family, start his life and everything with, with his, his uh, fiance. And I just figured that's what's going to happen. And, and I didn't give it too much more thought than that. Uh, I, I wasn't worried that he was going to get injured or killed or or anything like that because that's just not what happens. That happens to other people. That doesn't happen to to you. That that's what you read about in the news. 
that's not what you experience firsthand in real life. That that's just stuff that happens to quote unquote other people. But it's a it's a real punch to the gut when you become those other people, you know. And um, and it truly was unexpected as far as I was concerned. I, I knew what he was doing. I knew it it was a dangerous job. Just never occurred to me that it would be a job that could ultimately take his life. So what was that? How did that play out? Like, how did you find out? He and I both happened to be on uh, missions that day where we were out in patrolling in, in these remote villages. Uh, his was not that remote. They were able to drive from their base to this village and then dismount and walk into the village. The village I was in, we we actually had to fly in on helicopters the night before to uh, this mountaintop uh, just outside the village. And then we, we patrolled down into the village uh, as soon as the sun came up. Um, reason why is because we were uh, working alongside with the Afghan army and they, they didn't have night vision capability. So they weren't able to uh, walk on that uneven rough terrain uh, in the dark to go do the mission that we we're, we we're planning on doing. So, so we had to wait for the first light. So we went through the, the village and we're, we're doing our, our job looking looking through everything. And at, at one point, uh, kind of partway through the day, I got a call on the radio and they said that uh, there was a helicopter coming in and, and I needed to take my squad out to go secure a landing zone for it. And so we did, uh, we, we went over, we found a, a clearing uh, kind of at the far end of the village and we secured that area, formed a perimeter around it, uh, threw some smoke in that area and the, the helicopter came down and landed. And when we were just told that there were some VIPs on the helicopter. We didn't know who, but it was an American general and a couple French soldiers. Um, so we were uh, operating in French-controlled territory. They they kind of had that that area, um, but I, th- I think they're just there to kind of check up and see what kind of intelligence we found and and what kind of uh, stuff was going on that day. Since I was a, the highest-ranking uh, guy next to the general, uh, I. I went to go greet him and, and show him where everything was uh, and everything, which as a sergeant, that was kind of a little nerve wracking, uh, you know, going, going in and interacting with that general. Um, so, but he was, he was a nice enough guy. And, and uh, you know, we, we were, were chatting for a little bit and he gets a call on the radio and it, it tells him, and I can hear the radio uh, just, you know, by the nature of the, the microphone that he had. It says that there were two American uh, casualties. Now, anyone who's been in the military knows that we don't use names on the, on the radio, uh, call signs at, at best, but we'll never, we never use names uh, going over the radio. So there are no names spoken. So uh, at that point, I was just like, oh, you know, that, that sucks. That's, that's terrible. I feel bad for those people, for their families. I, you know, I feel bad for them, but there's nothing I can really do about that situation right now. So so we continued on. I, I passed off the general to my my platoon sergeant, and and uh, then I continued on with our mission. A little while later, I don't remember exactly how long later it was, but uh, I got a call on the radio from my commanding officer. Um, and again, for anyone who's familiar with the chain of command in the military, for a sergeant to get a 
call directly from the commanding officer, either you did something really good or really bad. And, uh, you know, they, they usually work their way through the chain of command. And I couldn't think of anything particularly good I did that day. You know, I, I did my job, but it was nothing spectacular. I wasn't getting any medals for what I had done that day. And so I, I, my first thought was, okay, what what did I do wrong? What, what did I screw up? Did my guys lose some equipment, whatever, you know, and, and I'm flipping out trying to figure it out. And I couldn't figure it out. So eventually I, I linked up with the commanding officer and he told me to uh, come over to the side, kind of away from everybody else to take my helmet off and, and take a knee. And that was another red flag because they never tell you to take your helmet off when you're outside the wire. Like that's, that's like a big no, no, you, you never do that. And so I was like, okay, what, what's going on here? Something's screwed up. And so what he told me was that my, my brother's unit was involved in an ambush and that my brother had gotten hit. And so now it's like the first time it's, it's dawning on me that he's not invincible, that something could happen to him. And so of course I'm, I'm just thinking he got hit and, you know, maybe he's wounded and he's, he's injured. So I, I, I start going into big brother mode thinking, how do I uh, handle the logistics to get to him? How do I, how do I get to him to be there for support or if he needs blood or an organ or, or something like that, how do I get to him? And I guess what I, I didn't understand was that uh, that he was skilled in action. And so when when uh, the commanding officer finally told me uh, that he was killed in action, I like anyone else, I, I broke down. I was crying. I was I was a, a mess. Except for I was a mess with with a rifle, you know, a fully loaded rifle, uh, all the ammunition that I I could possibly need. So it was a little more of a volatile situation than than maybe if I was to find out when I was still at home, uh, you know. And so. I didn't realize it at the time, but they, they constantly had people with me basically to make sure I, I didn't do something stupid to either myself or to somebody else. And, and so there was, there was always at least a couple soldiers around me um, to, to just make sure that I, I was okay. Within about 20 minutes or so of finding out that my brother was killed, our own unit started taking fire from the village that we had just come out of. And so at that point, I, I realized I, I had to I had, I had to do something. I couldn't just sit there feeling sorry for myself. Um, but that grief that I had, that I was, I was experiencing in that moment, uh, turned to straight anger. Uh, I was so angry, uh, at the people of Afghanistan for not being able to handle this, this fight on their own to require people like my brother and the thousands of others who, who came there and gave their lives for these people. You know, why couldn't they fight their own fight? Why, why did we have to be there? Why did we have to lose good people like my brother? Uh, I was so angry, in fact, that I had actually this, this fleeting thought of me just running back down into this village and just killing everybody that I saw. And because I was just so angry at, at these people, not, not, not even just the, the enemy who were, were fighting at, with us. Uh, I, I had this vision of, I just want to kill everybody. I was that angry. But I realized if I was to do something like that, first off, I, I wouldn't make it, uh, you know, just one man running down into a firefight like that. This isn't a Rambo movie. I'm not going to, I'm not going to survive that. So I started thinking about my wife. Uh, you know, I, I don't want her to become a widow. I don't want my son to grow up without a father and God forbid my parents end up getting a second knock on the door that day, telling them that, that now both of their kids have been killed. Um, I, I couldn't do that to them. So I realized that I needed to suck it up, 
put this anger aside, put this grief aside. And I need to focus on, on my job. Um, I had, uh, about 10 soldiers or so that I was responsible for that day. And if something happened to me, or if I wasn't doing my job, I didn't have my head on straight, uh, something bad could happen to them. And then how do I explain that to their families? How do I tell them that, Hey, your loved one is no longer here because I couldn't keep my stuff together. I, I couldn't, I couldn't keep my head on straight throughout this whole ordeal. You know, how do I, how do I say that to them? And so I, I realized that I now had another group of people that I, I needed to get myself straightened out for. And so I did, I, I, I was still angry, but I, I went and made sure that my, my men were positioned where they needed to be. And I say men because uh, we were infantry. And at the time there were no females in the infantry. So they were all men. Uh, and I made sure that they were positioned where they needed to be. I made sure that their uh, fire on their targets was going in the right direction, made sure that they were, they were uh, uh, conserving ammunition, uh, made sure that they were um, doing all the things that they were supposed to be doing. And they did a phenomenal job. I was very proud of how well they, they were able to operate under, under fire uh, during that uh, time period. And, and some of them had already known about what had happened to my brother. So they were just as mad as, as I was, well, maybe not quite as mad as I was, but they were, they were pretty mad. Um, I had one, one of my, my soldiers had a, uh, the, the 203 grenade launcher, and he just wanted to launch all of them and just annihilate whatever was standing in his way because he was just so mad. Um, I had to remind him to conserve some of his ammunition because we didn't know what else was coming. And so, you know, so that, that took place just, that was about 20 minutes after finding out that my brother was killed and it was just horrible uh, for me. Um, after that, that attack died down and, and we came out on top. Fortunately, we didn't have any, any American killed in action uh, in, in that fight, but we, we managed to stop the attack. I was, uh, I was told that they were getting a helicopter to come back and take me out of uh, that that area to start me on my my journey home. When the helicopter landed, uh, I got on the helicopter and I was sitting directly across from that same general that I talked to earlier in the day. And he recognized me and he said, "What weren't you the the soldier that I was talking to just a little while ago?" And I said, "Yeah." And I, I said, "Do you remember that call that you got about the the two soldiers who were killed?" And I said, "Well, one of them was my brother." And he and I both just couldn't believe the coincidence that. I happened to be out of all the thousands of soldiers who were in Afghanistan. I happened to be the one who was standing next to him when, when he got that call, you know, thank God they didn't use names on the radio because I don't, I don't know how this whole situation would have played out differently, but it would not have ended very well. I don't, I don't think so. That would have been a terrible way to find out, but, but yeah, that, that was, that was my day. And then that, that, that started my journey home. So uh, they, they flew me to Bagram air base the next day. I was I was able to be a part of what's called the ramp ceremony, which is where they they bring the bodies of the fallen soldiers onto the plane that that takes them out of Afghanistan, um, and and there were there were two soldiers. Uh, the other soldier, Tristan Southworth, uh, he was he was killed in the uh, recovery efforts of trying to recover my brother's body, and so I was able to be a part of that, and I felt. I actually felt very fortunate that I was able to be there for that. Um, most soldiers don't have anybody who is like a blood relative that is that close to them who 
is able to be a part of that. And so I felt fortunate that I was able to be there and, and thank all of the, the people who came through. There were uh, high ranking American soldiers, generals, colonels, things like that. Uh, there were uh, foreign soldiers, Polish and German uh, soldiers who came through, uh, who were paying their respects to a soldier that they didn't even know, but they felt the need to come and pay their respects. And I was able to, to be there and thank them and uh, you know, really just show my appreciation that, that they were able to take that time out of their day to, to come in and do that. So um, you know, from there, I, w- I was actually able to get on that same flight with my brother. Uh, we flew to Kuwait, uh, where he and I parted ways. I continued on to Germany, Atlanta, and then back, back home uh, from, from there. So uh, all in all, it took me about two days from the time that I found out that my brother was killed to the time that I was uh, standing back home in Connecticut from, from the time that I found out that my brother was killed. It took about two days, which is uh, breaking all sorts of records uh, as far as uh, uh, deployment travel is concerned. Uh, usually you don't get home that quickly, but, but they bumped me to the head of the line for, for all, these, uh, all these flights. Wow. And so did you end up having to go back on deployment? I did not. Um, No, I I originally was scheduled to go back. Uh, They they gave me two weeks to come back home for the funeral and and things like that. But at the funeral with with any kind of uh, high profile uh, death, like a a military death or or things like that, there were uh, a lot of politicians and and, and things like that who attended the funeral and one of one which happened to be the the state governor and for anyone who's not familiar with the national guard the the national guard falls under both the federal and state uh jurisdiction so so the the commander in chief is also the the governor as well as the the president of the united states so at the funeral the the governor of the state of connecticut told told my family and i uh that i was not going to be going back she was going to issue an order that I, I would stay back, uh, stay home because she said, no, no family should have to go through that a, a second time. And, and so from there I, I stayed home. Um, I, I was, I was home for the most part uh, since the day that I came back. The only time that was, that was, uh, that I had to leave, uh, was to do the out processing. Uh, when you, when you get back from a deployment, you have to go through various medical and mental health screenings and, and process all the paperwork and all that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, that, that took me back to Indiana and Camp Atterbury. So I had to leave my family for a period of time. They scheduled me for about three days to be there. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to stay here for three days. Um, this is just too much for me. Uh, so I ran through everything. I lied through my teeth through all the mental health screenings, uh, just, just to check the box and get it over with, because I wanted more than anything, I wanted to be home, uh, with my family. And the only thing that was standing in my way was a, a checkbox on a piece of paper from the, these counselors saying that I was, I was good to go. I wasn't good to go. I was nowhere near good to go. Um, but I was like, I don't, I don't care at this point. I just want to get home. And I think that's the case with anyone whenever they come home off a deployment. Right. Let's just get this over with and check the boxes. And, you know, there's no real transparency and honesty. And not right. just because you want to get back home, but it's gotten a lot better. But I think, you know, your rank, your career, like all those things come into play when you're looking at those boxes. And was this earlier on in your deployment or did it happen later? Like, did you feel guilt about that? Yeah, it it was towards the end of the deployment. Uh, So we, I I had gotten there in uh, like early February and we were scheduled to be there 
until October sometime in that time frame. And he was killed at the end of August. So, so we only had about a month and a half or so left, maybe two months uh, left in this deployment. And so, yeah, did I, I feel guilt? Yeah. I, I felt guilty um, about a lot of things. Um, I, I started questioning, you know, why I joined the, so my, my, brother had joined the Vermont army national guard, which I think I mentioned earlier, um, but he had joined before I did. And I felt guilty that I didn't join with him in Vermont. I, I joined the Connecticut army national guard. And had I joined the same unit as, as he did, I may have been able to be there with him. I may have been able to do something to help him, uh, to, to prevent this from happening. And so I, I kept going through all those what if scenarios in my head. Like, what if I had joined the Vermont National Guard? What if I had talked him out of reenlisting when he did, uh, which would have made him ineligible to uh, deploy because his, his enlistment was going to be up uh, at some point during that deployment. And so he wouldn't have deployed. What if I had done any number of other things, you know? Um, and so I, I felt guilty for, for all of those, those things that I, I didn't try harder, that I didn't try to talk him out of reenlisting, that I didn't try to join the Vermont National Guard, that I, I didn't do any of these things. And, and all of that was starting to eat away at me too. It, it just made me feel like I was, you know, just a, a terrible brother. You're as a big brother, like that's your job. Like your, your job is there to uh, protect your, your younger siblings. And, here I was and I, I screwed that up and I, I couldn't be there for him when he needed me the most. And, and so I, I felt terrible about all of that. And it, it really, it just ate me up inside. You said you reached out the vet center and, and things started to turn around. When did you start to feel like you were really reconciling your grief and what, what you had been through and experienced with the loss of your brother? And how did that transform your life? It took a while. Um, like I said earlier, it, it's not a immediate overnight transition that takes place. Uh, it, at least it wasn't for me. I don't know. Some other people may have different experiences. Maybe they have that light bulb moment earlier on in the, the process and, and things just get start getting better. But for me, I was going to the vet center for almost two years. And at the time that I stopped going, uh, the counselor that I was seeing, he, he was being transferred to another uh, location. And my family and I, we were, we were planning on moving to Arizona where we live now. And it just seemed like a good time to, to kind of cut off the treatment. I, I said, you know, I, I feel like I'm in a better place right now. I feel like I'm, I'm not having these angry outbursts all the time. Uh, maybe I'm not perfect. Maybe I still have them occasionally, but I'm I'm getting better at this, uh, and and I think I can I can handle it from here. And I, I wasn't drinking nearly as much as I had been before. You know, and the goal was never to quit drinking altogether for for me, anyways, it, because I I still you know enjoy a, a beer every once in a while, you know, with family or friends or whatever. It, it's it's not, but it's not like a I need this every night kind of thing. And that's what I was trying to get away from. I didn't need to drink to make myself pass out and go to sleep. I, I That's what I wanted to get away from. Um, so, so it got me to the point where I was able to kind of manage my life a little bit easier. And I, I knew I still had some work to do, but I, I felt like I had the tools 
to do it and and handle these these things on my own. And so we moved out here to Arizona, stopped going to to treatment for for a while and a few years after after being here, I started noticing that I was slipping into some of these old habits and patterns that that I was that I had successfully gotten away from for a little while. Um but but they were creeping back. Um I, I was starting to have a uh, a short fuse again where where I just get mad and angry at, at the littlest things. And it wasn't until actually late last year where I really realized why I was getting so angry at the little things. When you're in the military, uh, and, and you know this uh, probably just as well, uh, when someone tells you to do something, they, they give you an order. It, it's not one of those things that's up for debate. Like, oh, well, you know, maybe if we do it this way and change it, no, it's no, this is what needs to happen. And it needs to happen now and and just do it. Yeah. There's sometimes when there, that might be appropriate, but, but in the the heat of the moment, you kind of just have to follow those orders and, and, and do what is asked of you. And if it's not done as it, as it's intended to be done, then that's when lives are at stake when, when people start getting injured and killed. And I felt like I, I was carrying that same level of uh, intensity just mm-hmm. into my everyday daily life. And like, that's, that's no way, that's no way to live life, right? Like, like constantly acting as if everything is a life and death situation. When my son spills a glass of milk on the floor that's not a life and death situation. When my dog throws up on the carpet, that's not a life and death situation. I don't need to have that level of intensity with, with those kind of situations. Yeah. I can be frustrated that something like that happened, but I don't need to be, you know, turning into Sergeant Scott mode, you know, and start, you know, yelling with the knife hands and everything and, 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 uh, you know, going absolutely crazy about these situations. And but that's what I was doing, and I found myself falling back into the, those old patterns. Um, I was having more and more trouble sleeping, so I found myself drinking more and more, and, and getting it back into those old habits. And um, and I realized at that point that our mental health is it's not like some things with your physical health. Like if you were to break your arm, you go to the doctor, you get get the cast put on, uh, it's healed. You take the cast off. And it's good. You don't really need a follow-up unless you break your arm or you, you re-injure it somehow, right? So you're kind of just, just good after that, right? But your mental health is a little more fluid. It comes in, in waves. You know, certain things can set you off. Sights, smells, times of day or even times of year uh, can, can set you off. Anniversaries of, of things like the, uh, a loved one's death or their birthdays or uh, certain holidays that you enjoyed celebrating together or, or things like that. Those kind of things can set you off. And so I, what I realized is that it's, it's worthwhile to, just like with your physical health, to go get a checkup every once in a while. Uh, go, go and just have a chat with someone and and just make sure that everything's still ticking the way it's supposed to be ticking. Um, you know, you, you go to the doctor for an annual physical to make sure that your uh, cholesterol is in check to make sure that your um, you know, you're maybe do a cancer screening, uh, you know, on an annual basis to make sure that something didn't pop up in the last year, right? There's nothing wrong with going and continuing to get 
mental health treatment on a periodic basis, whether that's annually or more or less frequently, whatever makes sense for you. But there's nothing wrong with that. If, if there's, there's something that could be popping up uh, for you, go talk to somebody. And, and lately I I've been in several different treatment uh, options for PTSD. And currently I'm doing uh, prolonged exposure therapy where you basically are uh, talking about these, these trauma memories uh, that replay in your head over and over again. And, and you talk about it. And, and the idea is sort of like, if you were to watch a scary movie, the first time you watch it, it's pretty scary. But if you were to sit down and force yourself to watch that movie 25, 30 times, by that point, you kind of know when the guy's going to jump out of the closet and you, you know what, what's coming and it's not so scary anymore. And so that's kind of the idea with, with this as well, is that you, you kind of relive some of those, those memories over and over again to the point where they're, they're not as traumatic uh, to you. They're, they're still, it's not taking away the, the impact that they may have had on your life, but it, it's reducing your response to it. You're not jumping out of, the, out of the seat in that scary moment in the movie anymore. You're, you're not waking up in the middle of the night, you, you know, having nightmares about these things anymore. And that's, that's kind of the goal. And so, so that, that's what I've been doing. Um, and this is, this is 12 years after, after the fact. And, it's okay. It, it can be one of those things that, that goes on for, for years. Um, but you just manage the, the situation differently. And, and I, it's been 12 years for me, but I, I did have a significant time period in between where I took, took a break. So it wasn't like I was continuously working on this for 12 years, you know, for, so not to discourage anyone who, who might be looking for that type of thing. It's not like, uh, this is a normal results, uh, where, where, yeah, this is going to take me decades to, to get through. It may, it may not, I don't know. But, you know, for me, it's one of those things where I just realized it's okay to, to ask for help even all these years later. And the, the help that I'm getting is, is helping in, in various areas. And, and so, you know, it, it's just being open to getting that treatment. I commend you for reaching out a second time. You know, we often think that you know, you had that gap and you think you go through life and you think I'm good. I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. I got right. this. Right. Did you have another loss that kind of catapulted you back in time to that heartbreak? Because you mentioned, you know, you, this is the perfect part to say this too, because you said when you have a broken bone, you go to the doctor and we say in grief recovery, you, you have a broken bone, you go to the doctor why do we not go to the doctor when we have a broken heart? Right. It's, yeah, it's and, more than just our mental health. It's a broken heart. Mm -hmm. Did you have a broken heart again during that, that you found yourself realizing, uh Oh, I'm falling back into these patterns. You know, I, I didn't have a loss to the same extent uh, that, um, that, you know, losing my brother was, I, I didn't, didn't have a loved one pass away uh, like that. But what I did have, and this was this was about four years ago now, and and this was kind of in the middle of the process. So I don't know if this was exactly exactly what was the catalyst for for this change for me or or whatever. But it, it may have helped push me over the edge a little bit. But my my wife had you know pretty significant medical issues where she started having some seizures, and she had never had seizures before in her life. And, uh, she, she ended up in a coma 
and the the doctors and the nurses weren't sure what we were going to get when she came out of this uh, this coma. They they weren't sure if if she was going to be responsive. Uh, she, they didn't know they didn't know what was going to happen when when she eventually came out of the coma. And so, yeah, that that was a scary situation for me because here I am uh, with three kids. You know, I've I've always relied on her. We've always relied on each other, I should say, to to build this family. And now I'm questioning whether or not she's going to be there uh, anymore. And and that was that was really scary uh, for me. And I, I'm not saying that that necessarily caused me to start drinking and start you know uh, falling down that this this path because I I think there were some other warning signs early on that I I was starting to slip back into that that pattern, but. Um, but that's when I, I realized that I needed to get some help for myself too. I, I, I needed to uh, get back into it and, and start seeking out some sort of treatment. Um, and I, and I tried, uh, you know, several different things, but, but it, it, it really was, you know, once when, when we found out that she was going to be okay, I realized I, I needed to get back and, um, and, and start taking this seriously and, and not just say, Oh, I'll, I'll be okay. I'll, I'll just deal with it. I, I needed to do more, uh, be more act proactive with my, uh, my mental health. I think that a situation like that too, is such a reminder for us that we are not in control. Right. And so when you're in the military and you're wearing the uniform and you're the one that has to be in control and everything is precise and accurate and you're giving orders and taking orders and everything is, you know, you know how it mm-hmm. is. Right. It's a controlled, you know, we do our best to ha- have it be a controlled environment and respond like that when it's not, right? Right. And so when there's a situation like that, like with your wife, I can see it could pull you right back into that when you lost your brother and this feeling of no sense of control out of, right. you know, but I also know you had lost a dog, didn't you? Yeah. Well, this was, this was, uh, later on. Uh, so this was in the summer of 2020, uh, that, that my dog passed away. And, and that was, that was a pretty significant, uh, loss too, because she had been with our family for, uh, let's see. We got her probably two months or so after my wife and I got married. Um, so pretty much our entire marriage. She was there throughout this whole grieving process. She was the dog that I was yelling at for throwing up on the carpet, you know. And and the 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 cool thing about dogs is, as much of a jerk as I was to her uh, during that time period, she still, till the day that she died, she still was wagging her tail and happy to see me. And, um, she, we actually called her my, my coworker cause I, I work from home and whenever I would go into the office, she'd be right at my heels. She, she'd always come into the office with me. Um, as she got older, um, she was a, an English bulldog. So very low energy. She would just come into the office and, and sleep at my feet all day. And, and she was as happy as can be to be able to do that. Like that was just was, was so, uh, you know, awesome for her. Um, so much so that on the weekends when I wouldn't go into work, she would stand by the door and just start barking because she's like, no, this is where we need to be right now. Uh, yeah. I, I need to be here. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, so her, the loss of that dog was, uh, was significant. Um, she had been there for 
the entirety of my my children's lives up until that point. Uh, they never knew what it was like to live without a dog. My wife and I actually found because the dog used to used to sleep in our our bedroom. We, she had a little bed next to next to ours. Uh, my wife and I actually found it difficult to sleep at night because we didn't have her snoring uh, in in the room with us, <laughs> which which sounds weird. Like you might think like, oh my god, that's so annoying. But it actually became like like a white noise kind of thing, uh, where where we almost came to expect it to be. And so yeah, it 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 had some impact as well uh, on on us. And uh, you know we're we're coming up on two years. Uh, as of the time of this recording, by the time this recording airs, it's going to be a little bit after that. But um, even just last night, I was talking with my daughter and, and she was saying how she still misses uh, the the dog. And, and, and um, you know, so it, it's had a, a, an impact on our family and um, you know, yeah, you can say it's just a dog, but the, the people who uh, live with the dog, like that's, that's a part of part of your family. Uh, and and uh, you, you don't want anything bad to happen to them. Uh, and, and you don't want to break a dog owner's heart by saying it's just a dog. Don't right. do that, people. Right. <laughs> You're right. just breaking their heart all over again. Exactly. Yeah. So, but I so bring there was. That up, yeah, I bring that up because it's grief is cumulative and it's cumulatively negative. So all of those th- things that you experience, they just stack up over time. Yeah. 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 And and it's. It, it, what what really got me, um, and I, I knew that uh, she didn't have much time left, um, you know, w- with us, uh, just because English bulldogs they tend to live for about eight to ten years, and she was pushing twelve. Uh, I kind of knew it, time was limited for her. Uh, she she was basically on borrowed time as as far as I was concerned, because that's uh, you know that that they just don't live that long. And what killed me though, was seeing my kid's reaction when they, they found out that, that she had died. The heartbreak in them was, was like just stabbing me too, because like, I never, I don't want my kids to be uh, sad and upset over, over things um, like that. But at the same time, I was glad that they knew the love that they had right i'm glad that they were able to experience that because without the highs you can't have have the lows or maybe the other way around right if if you don't have those lows you don't appreciate the highs as much right um and so you know in a way i was i was sort of glad but at the same time it was just it was like stabbing me with a knife just just, it was hard to to see them experience that so how do you because i know like in those earlier years and the, the angry years and experiencing the grief years, you felt very angry and things and guilt and all of those things that we, these feelings that we punish ourselves with and we don't give ourselves compassion or grace. What does that look like for you today? Now that you've, you're in, you know, you're getting help again and things are, you're feeling more, maybe more like yourself. How has that changed for you? how you I give think, yourself compassion and things like that. I, I think what you, you said earlier about how grief is cumulative. Um, I, I think that's true for a lot of the experiences that we have in life. So, you know, as, as you experience things, you, you learn and grow from them, um, you know, all the way back from when you're a kid uh, and you touch something that was really hot for the first time. Um, you, you learn really quickly not to do that again. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, but that's like one experience that you, you, 
carried on throughout your entire life. Everything that you experience is something that you're going to carry on uh, throughout your life. And, and grief is included, uh, the loss of a loved one, a pet, uh, you know, a family member, what, whoever it is, uh, there, that is something that's going to carry with you. Um, and how you deal with those, those things will also carry with you. And I, I think I had a really hard time uh, for, for the longest time letting myself just, just accept the fact that, that there are certain things that are out of my control. Um, that, um, that no matter what I did or didn't do, um, it was, it was his time. It was his time. Uh, it, it would have happened whether I was standing right next to him or not. And so I just had to be okay with that. And, you know, it took me a while to start to accept that there are certain things just out of my control. It took me a while to learn how to grieve. Um, when, you know, I had lost loved ones before, you know, grandparents and, and things like that or earlier on, uh, but never, never someone as, as close to me as my, my brother was. And I, I didn't really know how to grieve that kind of loss when we got into that firefight right after I found out that he was killed. I, I felt like I put the grief aside. Uh, I stopped being able to grieve and I picked up the anger. And that's all I really knew was just how to be angry in the military. It's almost like applauded when, when you're going around being angry at things all the time. It's like, okay, well, this person's serious and they're intense and they, they're, you know, they're, they're really taking their job seriously. Okay. Yeah, I get that. But when you're coming home and you're screaming at your, your one-year-old and you're, you're yelling at your dog and you're, you're just being an absolute jerk, that's not the, the same thing. And that's, I think I replaced my, my grief with anger. And so for the longest time, I don't, I don't think I was actually even grieving. I think I was just actively being angry, trying to do something, uh, trying to be in control of a situation I had no control over. And so it took me a while, but I eventually figured out how to accept the things that I had no control over to accept the fact that, that he was gone, uh, that, that, that no amount of yelling and screaming and losing my temper was going to bring him back. Um, but what I could do is remember the good times with him. Uh, remember, uh, the, the things that we used to do, the, the trouble we used to get into as, as kids, remember the, the fun that we would have, uh, even, even as adults, um, we, we would go to hockey games together and we'd, we'd have fun. Uh, I, I, there's various stories I, I probably could tell about all that, that kind of stuff too. But, you know, I, I started thinking about those, those things. And then I started thinking about, would he be okay with how I'm reacting to this? Like if, you know, whatever people believe, if they believe in, in heaven and hell and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, just imagine for a minute, regardless of what you believe, that there's some portal to wherever they are and they're able to look down at us and see how we're behaving. Knowing what you know about that person, would they be 
proud of what you're doing with your life and how you're doing? Would they be upset? Would they be sad for you? Would And I thought, you know, why not try to, whether there's that portal that, that I'm, I'm talking about or not, why not try to live life in a way that would make him proud? And and that's what I've done, I, I think, anyways, with uh, with my podcast. You mentioned it earlier, um, the Drive On podcast, where I, I'm trying to help out other veterans who are struggling with various issues, whether it's PTSD or addiction or uh, job transition, things like that. I, I, I want to, to help people and so that they're not struggling by themselves. And I've also written my book uh, that that talks about this whole experience, uh, Surviving Son, which my goal for that is to hopefully have the other people who, maybe the service members who are dealing with, with stuff similar to what I was dealing with, to make sure that they realize that there are healthier ways to deal with the, the grief and the losses that they may experience. Um, maybe that those, those people didn't lose a, a blood relative the way I did, but maybe they lost a close friend uh, in, in combat or in a training accident or something like that. There's healthier ways to deal with it than what I did. But I also want everyone else to, who, who reads it to realize that there is a real person behind the name that you hear on the news. Uh, anytime that you hear about these combat deaths, you know, uh, last year had the, the 13, 13 troops that were killed uh, in Afghanistan uh, during the, the end of that, that withdrawal period. Each one of those people had a family and had people who cared about them. And they had a life before that. They had hobbies and interests and, and things that they were known for. And, you know, we don't know every single one of them. We don't know, maybe even don't even know their names, but why not? You know, they, they were people who went out and, and laid their lives down. We should take some time to, to get to know who these people were. Not that that would ever replace the, their being here, but uh, it helps if their memory lives on. And so that's, that's what I wanted to do in my book is, is talk about my, my brother and his upbringing and, and how, how we were as kids and, and everything. So by the time you get to the point where, uh, you know, he's killed, you sort of feel like you knew him uh, before, uh, before he was killed and almost gives you that, that sense of, like you, you almost lost someone that that you knew too. Not not necessarily to that same extent that 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 I I would have grieved him or, or anything, but but it, it just gives you a little perspective, little little insight into um, those names that you hear on the news. It humanizes the story. Yeah, it does. And so, what is one of your most favorite memories with Stephen or of Stephen, or a memory that like would embody who he was? So he was, he was kind of a goofball. He would, he would always do things to make people laugh. Um, it, no matter what, uh, no matter what the situation was, if you were having a bad day, you came home from work or school or, or whatever, and, and you're having a bad day, he'd figure out a way to get you to laugh. If you were telling a, a, a story, t- talking about something that was boring to him, uh, if he was standing there, he would literally collapse on the ground and pretend like he was sleeping um, you'd, <laughs> because he, that, that was his way of saying, Hey, this is boring. I don't want to talk about this anymore. And, and so we'd all start laughing because it was, it was just funny. Right. But there was, there's one time and I, I talk about this in, in the book because I think it, <laughs> I'm going to steal that. 
<laughs> well, and you know what? We we've done that too. Like after after he passed away, sometimes we'll we'll be sitting around. I'll be sitting with my parents and talking, and uh, and they'll be <laughs> saying something. I'm like, this is so boring, it's stupid, and I'll just like put my head down and like, <sighs> you know. I'm gonna um, do that to someone. See what the reaction is. <laughs> But so, so this other story that I, that I, I talked about in my book, uh, I think really shows how much life he had in him and how lively of a person he was. So we were up in Boston, uh, watching a Boston Bruins hockey game and they were playing the Montreal Canadians and it's a big rivalry between Montreal and, and Boston and, and everything. And, and so, uh, the Bruins had won that game. And so there's this whole big like USA, USA kind of vibe in the, the arena, right? Everyone's like, you know, uh, all, all this uh, patriotic kind of thing, like, oh, Canada, you know, yeah, okay, whatever, Canada, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and so he and I had been a few few beers deep at that point, uh, you know, really enjoying the game. And so if you've ever walked out of a pro sports ar- arena, you you know that the sea of people you're waddling like penguins trying to get out of the place right and there's there's this whole as far as your eye can see almost there, there's people right well we're standing there and with this whole big patriotic vibe going my brother starts yelling USA USA and he gets the entire arena all of these people to start chanting that too and and it's amazing. It's like deafening how loud it was because we're in the small like uh, uh, hallway corridor kind of thing, and and it, it continues all the way into the stairwell, walking out uh, of the place, uh, going at, down out into the street, and and it, it's it's just funny, right? So he and I had nothing but beer up until that point, and so we were pretty hungry, and we we found a, a burger place across the street, and we went in to go to go get some food. And so we sit down and uh, the waiter comes by and takes our order. And, and he asked my brother, is Canadian bacon okay on, on your burger? And my brother looks at him like he was about to rip his face off. And he goes, hell no, I want American bacon on this burger. And, and, the, and then he cracks a smile and, and we realize that he's, he's just joking. Right. And, and then the, the waiter goes, would, would you like French fries with that? And he has that same disgusted look on his face. <laughs> he goes, hell no, I want American fries. And the guy's like, I don't even know what to do with that, but you're, you're going to get fries, whatever, <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, that, that's just the, the, the kind of guy he was where, where he could get an entire arena to start chanting USA, USA. Uh, and then he can flip to just joking around with a waiter uh, at the restaurant and, and, it, it was just to me. It was a very memorable uh, time. You know, if if he was still here today, I don't even know if he would remember that he had done any of that. But to me, it was just like that's him. That that's that's his personality, and and I, I think that that uh, you know gives a good good example of who he was. Wit and humor. Yeah, yeah. I love that. <laughs> I'll probably share that story later with my husband. It's <laughs> great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for sharing everything that you have. I have no doubts that this is going to be helpful for many people. I could have, I wanted to like dig into more of the alcohol and, you know, because that's a stirb. I talked about that earlier and, and yeah. anger is also a stirb and I could have gone there too in the conversation, but I feel very whole and complete with what we've talked about. And um, I want to give you an opportunity to share anything else if there, if you have anything else to share. 
Yeah, uh, a couple of things. Um, you know, for for people who are going through grief like like this um, or, or any kind of grief, some people say it, it gets better with time. I, I don't know that that's true. I think it gets different. Um, you you kind of learn to live with that difference in your life. Um, you know, you learn to live with that loved one not in your life anymore. You start to learn how to not rely on that person being there and you adjust. So life gets different. And the sooner you get okay with the fact that life gets different, uh, I think the easier you'll easier time you'll have with the whole process. Um, not, I'm not trying to say that it, that it ever gets easy. It just gets different. And, and when you have that difference and you're okay with that difference, it does get easier um, because you're not, you're not swimming upstream. You're not fighting against the, the current or whatever. You're, you're, you're kind of accepting it and, and moving on and learning how to, uh, how to live life without whatever that thing is in your life that, that you're, you're grieving. So, um, you know, anything from, uh, loss of a loved one, a pet, a job loss, uh, relationship that ends all of those are different types of grief um but the sooner you you learn to to accept the fact that things are just going to be different i think that the sooner you can uh get on with with life and and have a a happier more fulfilling life if i can i know we we mentioned uh my my podcast earlier um uh the the drive on podcast for for any uh, veterans or loved ones of, of veterans, um, who might be struggling the drive on podcast. You can find it at driveonpodcast.com. Um, and then, uh, my book, uh, surviving son, you can get that on Amazon. Uh, just search for surviving son. Um, and, and it should, should pop up there. Uh, it's also at surviving sonbook.com. Uh, and you, you can find it there. Um, but, but ultimately, uh, you know, the goal for me is to to help people find hope where they might feel that all hope is lost. So, you know, if there's anything that I've said or or have worked on uh, that that might help people, I, that that's really the goal for me is just to to get that information out there and, and help as many people as possible. Thank you so much. And I'll actually I'll put the links to those mentions in the show notes. Just to piggyback what you had shared, it's about time. It's making the choice to take action in that time. That really is the catalyst for change. It's making a choice to make a change and taking action towards that change that you want to see in your life and in your grief. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And remember, when you unleash your heart, you unleash your life. Much love. From my heart to yours, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it, because sharing is caring. And until next time, give and share compassion by being a heart with ears. And if you're hurting, know that what you're feeling is normal and natural. Much love, my friend.